from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. There is no such thing as a simple phone call with my beautiful friend, Christiane Amanpour. Asking, as I did yesterday, where she's been, she answers, Ukraine. Asking where she's going, she says, Afghanistan. This is what it is like, having a fearless friend you love who puts herself in danger, reporting facts, holding people to account, and telling the truth from wherever she is and whoever she is talking to. Christiane goes on hiking trips, biking trips, retreats to her house in the Ile de Rey, flies to New York to see her son Darius. The food of Persia is her passion. Today I'm going to interview the most brilliant interviewer there is, and today I think I'm the fearless one. I ask everyone if they read a recipe from one of our cookbooks, and you said to me, actually what I'd like to do is talk about the box sets. Christian, would you read the menu for the box set that you've chosen? I will. So, of course, River Cafe Focaccia, fabulous. Then a zucchini, the datterini tomatoes, broad beans, slow-cooked summer peas, never had those, were great. Cannellini beans and Italian spinach. It all sounds simple, but it's delicious. The other thing I really love is the spatchcock chicken. Again, it's deceptive because it looks like it's only for a few people, but it's for feeding the 5,000, basically. And... The other thing I love is the pistachio cake. Oh, oh my goodness. You. Honestly, I'm originally yeah. Persian, yeah. Iranian, and English, and anything pistachio I love, and that is literally the best pistachio cake ever. It's so good. So, Ruthie, I chose a box set because, to be frank, I don't cook. Mm. And so to read a recipe sounded a little bit inauthentic for me, no matter how much I love eating mm. your food at the River Cafe. And I have been incredibly spoiled during COVID and the last two years. Great friends, people like Laura mm. and Eric Fellner, Laura Bailey and Eric Fellner, who come here a lot, mm. spoilt me a lot with your box sets. And it was really something that was not just a luxury, but a massive comfort. And I'd gone through a bit of an illness last year, and they really really sustained me, especially when people came to my house. You know, I was able mm. to offer them things without myself having to cook. I don't mind if mm. you don't, because, you know, what, what, what we really, I mean, whether you cook or you eat, and you do cook and you love food, and I think that you want to eat well, but what we need Christian Amanpour for, and well, I need you for my friend, but we all, the world needs you for the, as I said, the fearless... Do you like being called fearless? Yeah, I, sometimes you know, people say I'm fearless because I ski down mountains. Yeah. And I thought, no, no I think fearless. fearless, to be frank, I will give you my definition. Okay. Um, I said once that I've lived most of my professional life in a state of repressed fear mm. because you'd really be dumb if you said you weren't afraid yeah. of going to all these mm. very terrifying places. Mm. Um, where you are in the crosshairs and you're also a target, not just randomly mm. injured or killed like so many 
of us have been because we're deliberately targeted. So they know. They when know. You go, they mm -hmm. know who you are and they know where yeah, you are and they yeah. know you're a journalist. Yeah. And Me and they, anybody else yeah. who's there with yeah. the words press on their fronts or on their vehicles. Yeah, and they do it because they don't want the truth out. Yeah, and that they would be, give me some examples. Well, let's the say they, in the Bosnia just... War, it was the Bosnian Serb militants mm. who were, you know, attacking the civilians in Sarajevo. That was their battle plan, much mm. like what Putin has been doing in Ukraine. Mm. Christian, what was it like living under siege in Sarajevo? Well, it became the longest siege in modern history. It was nearly three years long, which meant that the Bosnian Serbs, backed by Serbia, who were also backed then by Russia, were besieging a city of ordinary civilians in the most medieval way. And it meant that food wasn't coming in. It meant that, you know, they cut off heat, electricity, water, and they were bombarding. What then happened was that the United Nations got an agreement to have an airlift into the Sarajevo airport, and only those people, the UN, was, was able to use it. And they would bring in pallets of humanitarian aid. So big pallets came in by military cargo planes, and they were your basics, what flour, uh, oil, beans, cans, stuff that was non-perishable that people could, could use. But the motif in terms of food was severe food poverty, the very, very first winter under siege. And it sounds like a cliche, and I didn't even believe it till I saw it. But literally people were foraging, honestly trying to get dandelion leaves and grasses and things like that that they might be able to to boil up into something. Some of them may have had little vegetable gardens with lettuce or spinach or whatever it was. Um, but there was no real protein. They could make bread because, because flour was coming in eventually by the, by the UN. But it was basic. And, you know, I just remember living in the Holiday Inn with all the mm. press there. I didn't realize until afterwards the managers had to pretty much bribe the besiegers and some of the UN peacekeeping forces who came in mm. to get things like eggs and mm. to get things like, I don't know, whatever. We didn't eat much. We, I was did, we ask really you, didn't. What did you eat? We did not much. It was nothing very tasty, but I will never forget what an effort they made to keep us. Uh, fed. There was some t uh, breakfast. Again, bread featured a lot. Mm. Um, sometimes we had some of the local feta cheesy kind of stuff, mm. which was like, you know, that they could easily sort of get or mm. bribe or, you know. Uh, I just don't remember much. There, there wasn't potatoes or tomatoes or... Or anything. Because all the farming, all the it was access, all, all the transport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just like now in, in Ukraine, in, yeah. when it's bombed all the time and there's a scorched earth policy, mm. you can't actually grow. And remember, again, this was an urban center. So yeah. anyway, there wasn't much farming going yeah. on in the city of Sarajevo. Mm. And it was, a, it was a terrible situation. And I remember when the siege started to be slowly lifted. One of, my, um, one of my friends went across the lines mm. and came back with a bag of... I think it was tomatoes. That's my memory. And it was the first fresh tomatoes we'd seen. How long were you there for? Years. But of course, I went in and out in a military plane, which was the only way to get out, if you could. But I did spend most of, the, of those three years of the 90s in Bosnia. Wow. And when you would return on the plane from Sarajevo going to Paris, are you thinking about what you're going to eat? Are you thinking No, that first I'm, I'm thinking of leaving those people behind and yeah. feeling very guilty. I was going to ask you about the kindness of strangers. You know, being in these very 
tough situations is the connections. Are they are they very firmly established? Very from... firmly established. Because to be frank, apart from anything else, your life depends on having good relations with mm. your competitors and your colleagues. Mm. You know, and the people of the city did. Would you? Yes. Would they be yes, they were. They were mostly grateful for us to tell their story. But and I have to say, it is important. They did begin to get angry. I remember them saying. You know, turn your cameras away from us. This isn't the Sarajevo safari. You mm. keep telling our mm. stories and the world doesn't intervene, doesn't mm. help us. Mm. And those were very painful moments mm. because you did realize that they were telling the truth. Mm. That, yeah, we could go to them, talk to them, get their experiences, see what they were trying to cook for their families, which was pretty much nothing in their little uh, kitchens mm. and trying to survive this war. And nothing was happening to help them. So then they would take it out on us because yeah. we were the closest for them. Yeah, and it was painful. Yeah. It, that was painful. Yeah. So I have no illusion that we are welcomed yeah. with open well, arms yeah, and yeah. we're the great saviors at yeah. all, yeah. at all. We yeah. do a job. We, If we're lucky, we tell the truth and the truth mm. gets out. And if we're very, very lucky, it causes intervention. Mm -hmm. So it didn't in Sarajevo until the Srebrenica massacre, which was mm. nearly three years, mm. well, three years after mm. the war started. Of course, in Ukraine... It was totally different, and it's great that the West did intervene to help Ukraine defend itself when it was illegally occupied, invaded, and the Russians went to war against them. Mm. So the difference in the world's reaction is mm. remarkable. It is remarkable. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Should we talk about Iran? Yes. What did your father and mother do? My father was, um, he worked in a travel agency. Mm -hmm. And my mom was, you know, a, what would you call it, a homemaker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she looked after us. We're four girls. I'm the eldest of. My mother, English Catholic. My father, Iranian Muslim. So I grew up in a very mixed 
ethnic and you know household that I think served me very well in my career because mm. I then understood that actually you can get past identity you can actually always find the commonality in people and you know the idea of mixed ethnicities or religions or nationalities means nothing to me it's just normal 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 um also my mom was a very strong woman and really did run the household and was very influential on us and our our let's say our moral and spiritual education mm. um quite a strict catholic and was my father allowed it never said i'm the man and i'm muslim and mm. you have to bring up in iran you know the mm-hmm. kids as muslims none of that mm. he absolutely agreed to my mother's um uh demands mm. <laughs> and but it was a very i just remember a very very happy household that actually revolved around my mother's cooking well that's what i was going to ask so your mother was British. Yes. Did your mother bring British food Not to Not really. Tehran? You see, I don't even think well, yes and no. I don't know whether my mother was a particularly accomplished cook before she got married. I think she learned on the job, so to speak. Mm. And she did become excellent and we were the only ones really that in my group of friends that were serving more sort of western food. So my friends would come to my house for my mother's pizza for her chocolate cake which was i think kind of like a flourless chocolate cake before i even knew that that was the case but a very rich chocolate cake that was beautifully iced and was delicious and everybody loved it and chocolate mousse i mean i have such great memories of my mom making these things and that i would be sitting at the table just trying to grab the spoon like all yeah. kids do you know and lick the spoon and just love it and angel cake so we had the chocolate cake and then the angel cake and and it 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 just was sort of a a theme of my childhood that my friends loved it and were always anxious to come to my house yeah and what about the persian food then well the persian food was mostly when we went out to mm-hmm. friends houses or to families houses but also on a friday which is sort of the sunday in mm-hmm. in the middle east it's like the sabbath mm-hmm. the friday everybody's the holiday the weekend and the traditional persian rural meal is called chelo kebab chelo is the rice chelo kebab oh, okay is the rice so it's this pile of steaming yeah. white rice with saffron on the top yeah. and a crust underneath which is very yes and it's very difficult to house. achieve <laughs> yeah it's really you know tough to make i do actually what i do, do. do well first of all you have to boil the rice al dente as if you were doing pasta right. then you take it out you've already washed it got rid of all the extraneous starch so you take it out and then you have this sort of very um substantial iron pot mm-hmm. and you probably melt a little butter in the bottom and let that go all over the bottom mm-hmm. then you take a layer of the rice and you pack it down very hard oh, right. then you put the rest of the rice in remember in iran you cook for lots of people so this is a right. big pot oh so you put a thin layer yes. down and first, pack it which down you know hard will be the crust. yes okay. and then you put the other pyramid on you put holes with the you know with the handle mm-hmm. of a spoon you pour in copious amounts of melted butter and then you put a top covered by a dish towel and that then steams you put the heat on quite high for for about 10 minutes to give the crispiness mm-hmm. then you immediately turn it down and the rest is about 30 to 40 minutes of mm-hmm. steaming this rice so you have a very light but buttery rice mm-hmm. saffron then you pour on afterwards when you've dished it up and if you've done it right and you've got the high heat low heat 
done just right, you get this wonderful crust mm. called tadig. And this is from a woman who says she doesn't like to cook. <laughs> <laughs> I like to remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to remember and I like to eat, exactly. Yeah, well, you, but can I just ask you in that, maybe I got it wrong, but the rice was cooked before you pressed it down. Al dente. And then you've cooked Al dente. it for another 30 you've minutes. You've steamed so it, it for another. Okay. So it's still very so, fluffy. You oh, don't okay. overcook it. Like, oh, okay, because I was wondering about cooking and then mm, cooking mm, for mm, another 40 mm, minutes. That's why you have to make it al dente. Okay. It's not okay. like you put a bunch of yeah, rice no. on this and then let yeah. all the water no, no, absorb. No. no, okay. And it's really delicious. And then the thing that went with it is called is the kebab, the meat. So it's either boneless chicken oh. or chicken on the bone or it's uh, minced uh, lamb with other stuff that yeah. you put in it. Don't ask me because I haven't done it. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> or it's more of a filet steak, like the filet, very yeah. tender. And that you put Which on the, you like on the bar. Which you I, like I like it, it all. Oh. I don't, not so keen on the mince. I find mm. that somewhat sometimes a little indigestible. Mm. But, um, mm. but you know, before the age of salmonella and all the rest of it, instead of when you served the, the rice, you would get a raw egg, mm. crack the egg, mm. separate the white from the yolk, and then you put the yolk in the rice and mix mm. that up instead of butter because you you've already that. got a lot of if butter. You, if they're if the right, even, yeah. you know, I think if you heat once you yeah. heat it up. Yeah. But going back to Tehran, your father was Persian. Persian, yeah. And did you have grandparents? Yes. You see, my father was 19 years older than my mother, mm -hmm. and he was the youngest of five boys. So yeah. just imagine how right. old my grandmother was. Right. Very, very right. old. And all I remember was this very old lady who was quite terrifying, quite yeah. strict. But we did visit her on Fridays, I remember. Again, that's the mm -hmm. holiday. And all I remember is that we would come in, she would be sat at the end of the room in what looked like an armchair throne. Mm -hmm. And then all of us would be arranged you know, around the sides of the room. Yeah. And in front of us were these little tiny side tables on which were very carefully peeled oranges, I remember. Mm -hmm. And so we'd eat the oranges and have some pistachio nuts. And we'd, it was quite formal. We'd have to go and kiss each cheek. And mm. then, mm. honestly, we couldn't wait to leave. Yeah. But I'm sure she was fabulous. And to be frank, I wish I'd known more about my yeah, grandparents. Maybe she was tired. I For sure. Yeah. I mean, the I mother. Give, I think I'm going to try, you know, giving my children pistachio nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It come. yeah, because but it, it yeah. is, it's, and it's you know, an interesting just, history. You know, yeah. you remember her, and maybe she definitely been remember through, her. You know, being ninety. Yeah. You know, my that, father's uh, father had died, so I never met him, and my father barely knew him. One thing I do remember about tomatoes, though, my dad said that when he was the youngest of these five strapping boys. They used to bully him and mm. jump on top of him and get this stuff his mouth with tomatoes, which tomatoes. he hated. <laughs> that is that's funny. I remember, I remember that story. Memory. Yeah, a food memory. Yeah. and he didn't cook at all. No, but he did do a mean vinaigrette, oh. and to this day, yeah. that's my vinaigrette, what and I it? teach it to whoever comes tell in me. my. Vis should okay. I? Somebody who doesn't I'm not cook going to tell is you. Giving me yet another no, recipe. No, I'm not going to oh, tell you. Are you no. don't want to tell the world? No. Oh, why? It's because it's I secret. Think... Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, there are some people. They're, they're it's restaurants the only thing I know. Sometimes, sometimes they always say that restaurants will, you know, give a recipe and then leave something out, yeah. or you know. But then it would be no good if I gave it and then left something out. No, you wouldn't do. No, it's the only thing and I know. It's the only it. secret I because have. A good vinaigrette is hard to make. It is. You know, and my dad, very... I always remember my dad. You know, yeah. he died uh, in 2016. And I always remember that. You remember Whenever I have the vinaigrette. And have you taught it to Darius? Yes. Okay. And um, and to whoever comes into my yeah. orbit and yeah. 
you know, needs to make some vinaigrette. Yeah. I mean, do you remember going to markets in Tehran? Were there beautiful Not markets. markets? Oh, no. well, actually, no, I did. They're called bazaars, obviously. Mm. It's not like the mm. French or Italian mm. or British mm. markets, but bazaars, which mm. were... I guess, almost even more magnificent because, mm. I mean, if anybody's been to the Great Bazaar in, in Istanbul, imagine that in all the other Middle Eastern yeah. countries. And we used to go. I do remember um, my mother would do the shopping, obviously. I would just be amazed by the color and the vibrancy and the, I want this and I want that, even if I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I'm afraid that the men at that time were very cheeky and, mm. and quite intrusive. Mm. So I used to go not knowing any better in my shorts or my short mm. skirt or whatever and, and get my bum pinched. That was quite de rigueur in those mm. days. My mum told me from now on I had to bring a flip-flop, you know, sandal, mm. hold it behind my bum, and if anybody dared, boom, really? you know, Try bang them. <laughs> it really worked. Yeah, no. mm. When I went to Syria with Richard, we went to Damascus and we went to the bazaar. Again, the food was very different from a market you would see in France or Italy. And it was even more um, compelling because there was the sanctions. There was no Coca-Cola sign. There was not, you know, any hamburgers or anything Western at all. And was growing up in the Shah's reign, was that more American? Was it because there was a good relationship between? Yeah, I mean, it was... Or was it not? It, 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 was, it, was, it, was, yeah. it was more friendly to the West, for sure. But remember, mm. it was only a minority of people who mm. were able to benefit from that. Although he did bring in, you know, education, rights for women, all of that. But in the end, you know, there was this uh, religious revolution in 1979, theocracy, and to be honest... Weirdly, the Iranian revolution propelled me into my career because that's when I realized, A, I needed to make it on my own. I Mm -hmm. could not rely on my lovely parents and my Mm -hmm. idyllic childhood and whatever they thought I might do with the rest of my life. And I needed to, to make my way in the world. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Iranian Revolution was a first-hand, experienced, historical earthquake that clearly still has reverberations to this day. And I realized that I actually want to tell those kind of stories. So you were actually there when Khomeini... My father sent me out about two weeks, if I remember, before Khomeini came back. Yeah, he came back around the 1st of February, and I was sent out uh, in the middle of January 1979. And I'm glad... Well, first to England, where Mm. my English grandmother was, and then on to America to go to university. I decided that's where I needed to make my 
make my way in the world, mm. to go to university, be a journalist. Did you have experience of the United States and Britain? It wasn't like being lifted from Iran I had, into I had no the experience with the United States. I'd visited mm. once as a teenager, but that's it. But I obviously, you know, every summer I would go and stay with my mother's family. Mm. We would all go to England yeah. for the summer holidays. And you didn't have pistachio nuts? We and, didn't. Uh, my grandmother was oranges. a very simple cook, but great, you know, mm. creme caramel, mm, nice. <laughs> roast pork and crackling. Mm. Those were the things. Fish fingers. And when you were living with your grandmother alone, your parents were still in Tehran? Yeah, I didn't really live with her really much. I mean, right. we were in boarding school for a period of time during the 70s, my sister and I. And uh, we went, you know, for half terms and weekends because the mm. parents were living in Iran. That's where our home was. But we'd go back for the major holidays. And then you were on your own. So tell the story of what happened and when you went to the United States. So, you know, U.S., uh, kind of easy. My first year was, you know, refractory food or whatever you call mm. it, canteen food, but disgusting. Where? In, okay, tell me about that. University the in the U.S., you know, my first year. I was at the University of Rhode Island, which I loved. It was in Kingston, Rhode Island. After about a year, I then lived off campus with friends. And that's where I first learned to cook. Okay, let's... In fact, yeah. I have brought a little prop. Because oh, this, for me, is a comfort a blanket. It's a tiny, prop. slim tome. It's called In a Persian Kitchen. It's got a illustration of a Persian dancer mm. and a woman holding a basket of fruit. And it's very, very well-thumbed and mm. dirty, as you can mm. see. Yeah. It's had a lot of, you know, th stuff... I set up a rotor, so we were five. We each had a day of the week where we'd go to the supermarket and shop for the week. Each week, one different person did it, and each night of the week, a different person would cook. And that was fab, and so I would cook out of this Persian cookbook, and it was great, and I, that's where I first learned about tofu. One of my roommates was a vegetarian, another one did trout, another one did hamburgers or steak. It was really amazing, but what was really great was that we ate well every night at home, and we had we would invite friends. It became like the River Cafe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a hot ticket, Ruth. People wanted Getting to come to, I bet. to our to I our <laughs> to our table. Only, were you the only non-American in yeah. that group? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you cook Persian? Yes, I did. And um, if I could get the tadig right, the crust, mm. I was in you know very popular that night. If not, there were some complaints. But it was cool because you know yeah. it was the 80s. We talked about the campaign for nuclear disarmament, mm. anti-apartheid. And to this day, I have family lunches and um, yeah, group so nice. dinners. And you go, I like you it. You usually go Sundays. You Sundays, to Sundays yeah. Too, and I mm -hmm. often ask you if you want to do something on a Sunday. You're with your family, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. And yeah, what about cooking for your son? Well, I mean, my son, to be frank, is a better cook than I am. And is I'm he? so grateful that That's he's a great good. cook and yeah, he likes it. Yeah, yeah. He likes That's it. Good. He loves it. I did do stuff, but mm. I'm not brilliant. His mm. dad taught him how to do pancakes and mm. things like that. Mm. Um, it's a very good breakfast cook. There is his dad. But, you know, I did some stuff. I can do a roast chicken, Ruthie. The global central kitchen in Ukraine... Did you get involved in that? Did you, well, under, you know, see Jose that? Chef Jose yes. Andres, yes. who is an amazing man, Let's as you talk know. About him. Yeah, and he's got this amazing operation called World Central Kitchen, which he takes, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he first started in Puerto Rico, Hurricane Puerto Rico. Maria. Yeah. And what he did was quite simple. It's not, again, it's not like just handouts. He comes, he scopes the situation, he looks at all the local restaurants mm -hmm. or bars or whatever, mm -hmm. and mobilizes them to be able to, to cook 
cook and helps them if he has to bring in supplies and things like that to feed their communities. Mm. So it starts small-ish in terms mm. of how many meals per day they're able to, to deliver. And then it gathers momentum. And they have a very, very good social media platform now. Mm. And they've got a lot of help. But what they do is is quite revolutionary because in wartime or in crisis, um, they do what others can't do. Mm. And it has a huge impact. Mm. And they worked with other with restaurants. That's right. I didn't understand yes, that. Yes, they worked with and restaurants. And carrying boxes from mm-hmm. restaurants to feed people. Yep. You know, just they went crossing to train bridges. stations, to yeah. hospitals, yeah. to Something. refugee centers, to mm. places like that. Mm. And they even had to, you know, try to get the the train lines, the railway yeah, lines, to help yeah. move things from yeah. one city to another. It was quite an operation. Yeah. I mean, it's really no, something. It's phenomenal. I yeah, think. Okay. a logistical... And what was it like for you being there? Was it very different from Sarajevo? Was there? It was, was, there, was somewhat there different, but it was. I, I was there during a turning point, which was really interesting, and that's when the Ukrainians pushed the Russians back from Kiev. So I was mm. in Kiev at that period, mm. and I could see with my own eyes, you know, how the momentum on the ground was shifting. And how the incredible support um, of NATO, led by the United States and many other European countries and their neighboring countries, was really making a difference. Mm. And, um, yeah. Well, is there U- Ukraine food? That uh, is there identity, is. Identity, or were they not? Were I mean, they just... There is. I, would, I don't want to over-talk it because yeah. I didn't get to, to experience right. much right. of that in restaurants. But, you know, soups what they call dumplings, borscht? obviously their borscht? version of borscht, yeah, yes, which yeah. they very clear is not like it's the Russian, Russian borscht. borscht. <laughs> um, a lot of meat, a lot of potatoes. Um, as you know, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Mm. So it's going to be and very Africa. difficult. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Africa. Mm. And even Russia yeah. is the fertilizer central for the world. So this war is going to, and people are very concerned, and, and international leaders are very concerned, that it will not only exacerbate you know food poverty around the world it could lead to famines and depending on how long it goes on it could lead to unrest remember yeah. the arab spring started in tunisia because mm-hmm. of the high price mm-hmm. of food and food poverty mm. so we're we're looking at a real crisis it's yeah. a huge crisis mm. and putin has shown the world that when they try to react just gently like they did in 2014 mm. He just rolls right over the yeah. the rest of the world. Have you ever interviewed him? No, I'd like to. Wouldn't you? Interviewed yeah. Zelensky just before the invasion. Was it was like? just amazing. What was he like? He was incredible, really yeah. incredible. And he came with a warning to the West. It was in Munich, what's called the Munich yes, Security Munich. Conference. Yeah. It was 19th. The invasion was on the 24th. He actually came out of his country. And you'll like this because it's about food. I said to him, Mr. President, most people here didn't expect you to be here. You've got the threat of an invasion. The United States, your biggest backers, have suggested you don't leave at this precise moment. And he said, I had breakfast in Kiev. I'm having lunch in Munich to tell you our story and what we need, and I'm going to have dinner in Kiev tonight. Is there any city that really means something to you for food? I mean, that you think, I'm going to this city. I know where I want to eat. I know what I want to eat. I know... Paris, Paris. Yeah. Ile de Ré, which is not a city, has lovely, lovely restaurants, very simple, um, really also delicious. London, yeah. uh, New York. I mean, yeah. to be honest so with you, I am I am yeah. very ecumenical about yeah. all of that because yeah. there are great restaurants all over the world yeah. and in the most unlikely places. One of the great things that Anthony Bourdain did for the world, yeah. God rest his soul, mm. was 
show the world that in the most unlikely corners, in the most unlikely places, as well as in the obvious places, the idea of food was always there and the greatest food and the greatest experience and atmospheres. And I think actually what you're doing and what he did, there's no doubt that you bring people together over food in every single way, whether in joy, in grief, in friendship, in family, whatever it is. And comfort. And comfort. So that's my last question Mm -hmm. to you, um, is if you need comfort, whether you're, well, probably when you're, in a place where you can get the food of your choice. Is there a food that you would t- turn to? I'm, I think I might know the answer. Yes, you probably do know the answer. You know, it really is Persian it food, is. and it's, yeah. the, it's the white it's rice. rice. It's the usually the boneless chicken um, that goes with it and a grilled tomato that comes with it as well. And if I'm feeling okay, I'll crack that egg yolk in it. Yeah. yeah. And that will be, it'll be rich, but it'll also be very, very comforting. Be careful in Afghanistan. I will The women there who've been so terribly, terribly marginalized again after 20 years of promise and activity and showing how phenomenal they are, they've been so marginalized. And by the way, the dramatic food poverty in Afghanistan right now because of the sanctions that have been put on the Taliban, it's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. Come back. Thank you, Christian. Thank Thank you, Ruth. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.